Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I started out as a musician uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Many, many years ago, I was on the worship team at my church, and then in the evenings, I would play music at coffee shops or restaurants or any kind of dive that would have me. And one evening after playing just a handful of songs, this gentleman came up to me, a little older, a lot more handsome than I am, and said, uh, hey, I'm starting a record label. Would you like a record deal? And as much as I love church work, that was an easy decision for me to make. And so he introduced himself. His name was Michael W. Smith, and he had just started a record label, and so he signed me to, his, to a record deal, and I did that for several years. But I got to say, it just did not excite me nearly as much as the work that I'm getting to do here this morning. And so I have left behind the guitar and the piano many years ago, many, many years ago. And so from about 2005 on, I've, uh, I've let the music to the, the much cooler, hipper uh, guys, and I just go out and I speak. And I really, I want to clarify, I appreciate the, the great introduction, but I really want to clarify to you and everyone here this morning, I am not here as a representative of compassion. I'm here as a representative of our God. And I want to open God's word and see what God has to say to us about his mission, about his command, and about his method as it relates to the world's poor. And I want to be really upfront with you that I don't know what God is going to do this morning. God may have something to say to you about Compassion International, and you may join the millions who sponsor children through Compassion, but God may have something to say to you that's completely different. That's why it's important that we go to God's Word and we ask God to say to us whatever God wants to say to us, knowing that God has an agenda much bigger than Compassion International. And I believe that even if you're not interested in all in the ministry of Compassion International, that God, through His Word, and enlivening that word is still going to have something to say to you. So if you have your Bible with you or um, a, a device where you could access God's word, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 16. And then we're going to jump over to Galatians chapter 2. And then we're going to end in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So Exodus 16, Galatians 2, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you want to put a bookmark uh, or save those pages on your phone, that's where we're going to be. So we'll start out with a very uh, profound theological truth. I love coming up to Canada. It is so beautiful. I don't know how uh, anyone walks around with a sour face here in Abbotsford because just driving here with all the mountains around, oh my goodness, I woke up in a sanctuary of creation. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal place. It is incredible. And Tim Hortons just is, beats the pants off Starbucks. I mean, you're doubly blessed. This is an amazing place to live. But I got to say, despite the beauty and the wonder of your great country, and this city in particular, I believe that God is Southern. I can prove this. It's in Exodus 16. God's, God has rescued his children out of slavery in Egypt, and they're making a long road trip together from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And on this long journey together, God's children get a little hungry and very whiny. And so God pulls over the minivan, and he has a talk with his children through the babysitter Moses. And he says these words to him in Exodus 16, verse 4. I will rain down bread from heaven for you, and each day the people are to go out and gather enough bread for that day. In this way, I will test them to see if they will really follow my instructions. 
Now, God being the good father that he is, he kept his promise. The next morning, his children woke up, and to their amazement and delight on their front yards were millions of delicious, sweet, flaky pieces of bread, so good they'd never tasted anything like it. They called it manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? It was that good. In the morning, he fed them this this delicious bread. In the evening, he fed them quail, manna and quail, In the South, we would say that's biscuits and chicken. Obviously, God is Southern. Okay, you're not going. Some of you look a little skeptical. Well, can, can we at least all agree on this this morning, that God is good, amen? That God shares that goodness with us. You woke up surrounded by God's good gifts. You have a mind that works, a body that works. You had food on your plate, clothes in the closet, hot water coming out of that shower, people that I hope you like around your breakfast table. And you woke up in this beautiful cathedral of Abbotsford. I mean, God has rained down manna from heaven for us already. And and the day's not done. Now, the problem with God sharing his goodness with us, though, is that we tend to want to hoard it. It tends to bring out the worst in us. So as God served breakfast and dinner, he also served a law. A law, knowing that we would tend to want to have it all to ourselves. He said, he says that we should go out and we should gather only our daily bread. Now he tells them exactly how much daily bread is. He tells them there in Exodus 16 that they should go out and they should collect one omer, which if you're into ancient measurements, you would know that's about two liters. So they collect two liters of daily bread for every person who lives in their tent. And it says in Exodus 16, verse 18, that when they measured by the omer, when everyone took only their daily bread, that everyone had enough. When they measured it by the the omer, they found that those who gathered much because they had much family didn't have too much. And those who gathered little because they had little family didn't have too little, but everyone had as much as they needed. But here's the best part of the story. Because everyone had as much as they needed, because everyone had something on their plate, everyone got to taste and see that God really is good. And God really does see them. And he really does care for them. And God really can be trusted. And if you're a note taker, that would be my first point that I would write down, that God's mission is to prove to the nations, to display to the nations, to all people, that he is good and powerful and loving and compassionate, and you can trust him. You can trust a God like that. Then we move on to Galatians chapter 2, and we connect another dot to this story of daily bread. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is sent out as the very first missionary to Gentiles, to folks like you and me. And he's been worshiping in the church there in Jerusalem with his brothers and sisters for quite some time. He's gotten to know them. And the, the Sabbath comes when they gather him before the church, just as we're gathered here this morning. And the pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John, they lay their hands on the Apostle Paul and they commission him and they send him out into the world to preach the good news that God is so loving and so compassionate and so good and so powerful and so trustworthy that he sent his one and only son to die the death that we deserved 
to kick death in the face on our behalf so that when we believe in him, we cross over from death to life. That if we believe that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then we, we, we will inherit eternal life. That is good news. Now, as they send him out the doors of that church with that good news to preach to people who've never heard it before, they give him one final piece of instruction. Now, I want you to imagine if that was you. If this morning your pastor sends you out to preach the gospel to a group of people who have never heard it before. And as you leave, he says, wait, 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 wait just a second. I forgot one thing. One last instruction I want to give to you. What would that be? Well, here's what they told Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. He said, all that they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. The very last words to this missionary Paul were, remember the poor. And Paul says, you can't stop me. I'm eager to do it. That word eager means a fervent desire that cannot be stopped. You couldn't persuade Paul to stop remembering the poor. Why? The poor, we believe, that they're speaking about were the Christians, the brothers and sisters right there in the room, right there at the church in Jerusalem. Scholars now believe that around 80% of the Christians living in Jerusalem in the first century were living in abject poverty, defined as they did not have bread every day. You see, the Bible defines poverty, physical poverty, very differently than our economists and politicians and maybe than you and I do. The Bible outlines physical poverty as if you don't have bread for today, you're poor. And if you have bread for today, you're doing great. You have enough. If you have bread for today and there's another loaf in the pantry for tomorrow, you're what the Bible calls rich. And Paul was asked, as you leave this place of poverty and you go into the world and you preach the good news of the gospel... Please don't forget our physical needs. Please remember our poor. Help us somehow. And he said, I'm eager to do it. You can't stop me. I had that kind of transformational moment in my own life. Many years ago in 2007, I made a trip to Ethiopia. At the time, I was still working as a musician. I got a flat tire. It takes a long time for a musician to change a flat tire. So I had time to make a friend. This little girl, she came wandering out of the bush toward me, and I couldn't see her very well. I brought a couple of pictures of her. I don't see very well without my glasses beyond about 20 feet, and so I raised my camera, and I pointed in her direction and zoomed in as far as I could so I could see who this shadow was coming toward me. And I, and I saw poverty really for the first time. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just a problem out there. It was a person right here within feet of me. As she came closer to me, I took in the details of poverty that the economists and the theologians and the politicians don't tell us about. Her skin was an ashy gray and not the beautiful brown that God meant it to be. Her hair was oranging, rusting around the edges from malnutrition. She had no socks or shoes, uh, no pants. The dress she was wearing was someone else's discarded shirt. Her nose was crusty, her eyes were runny, her tongue was swollen and bright red like a strawberry, so big she couldn't close her mouth around it. Even if she spoke my language, she couldn't have communicated her need. And so she talked to me the only way she could, with just two fingers raised and pointed into her mouth, please feed me. 
And I wasn't there on a feeding mission. I was just passing through this, this area. I hadn't even planned on stopping. My car had broken down, and so I was not prepared. I wanted to help, though. I was eager. And I pulled out just a couple of granola bars I had in case I got snacky and a bottle of water, and I put it in her little skeleton arms, and I pulled her bony body into my squishy middle, and I just held her, and I prayed for her. God, I pray that your will would be done in her life. I ask God that you would preserve her life. You would give her education, that you would give her food on her plate, that you would keep her safe from harm as she's out here wandering looking for help. That God, that you would put a pastor and a church in her life, that you would rescue this little one. Oh God, please rescue this little one. I said goodbye to her and I walked her to the nearest church that I could find and I handed her off to a pastor who promised me that he would take good care of her. And as I drove away, in a cloud of dust, there that pastor stood with this little girl's hand in his. And I, if I close my eyes, I can still see her. And there are some weekends when I don't want to get on another airplane. And I don't want to sit in another rental car. And I don't want to sleep hundreds of miles away from my family and my wife in a hotel bed. And I close my eyes and I see her and I'm eager again. You see, the poor for me are not some problem out there. They're a person I've held. They're not a statistic. They're not a number, but they have names. And for Paul, that's what it took for him to become eager. For you, perhaps, to become eager to care for the poor, you might need to leave your postal code. You might need to leave your country. You might need to have a relationship with someone who lives a very different kind of life so that you become eager. An eagerness that only comes from seeing the poor as people just like us. Let's go lastly then. Our first point was that God has a mission to show himself good and loving and powerful and trustworthy to the nations. And secondly, God has a command to all of us, I believe, not just Paul, to remember the poor. But lastly, God has a method for doing that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the apostle Paul, he leaves Jerusalem and he begins to preach this good news. And thousands upon thousands of people declare that Jesus is their Lord too. And they begin to gather in these Christian communities that we would call churches. And Paul begins to disciple them through letters and visits. And as they reach a place of maturity, he remembers the poor back in Jerusalem. And he says, now you're ready. Now you're ready to serve the poor back in Jerusalem. They fly a different flag. Their skin is different. They speak a different language. But they're your brothers and sisters. So Paul begins, and you see this through most of his letters. Paul begins to write to the churches he's founded and tell them about the poor in Jerusalem and ask them to give an offering to give some of their leftover biscuits and chicken to the church in Jerusalem so that the needs of the church in Jerusalem can be met. That's God's method, to ask Christians who are mature and have plenty to give some of that extra to the church around the world that doesn't have enough so that everyone can taste and see the goodness and power and love and compassion of God and trust Him too. 
And so we're going to look for just three little verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13, 14, and 15. Just a little section of Paul writing to, to a church in Corinth, asking them to give to this offering that's going to be shared with the poor in Jerusalem. And here's what he says. He says, It is not our desire that you would be hard-pressed so that others might be relieved, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty may supply what they need, so that in turn, someday their plenty may supply what you need. And then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. So verse 13, it is not our desire in asking you to give, it is not our desire that you would be hard-pressed that there might be equality. That word hard-pressed is a Greek word, philipsis, which is usually in your New Testament translated as the word tribulation. It's, it's a burden. It's such a hardship that it threatens your very life. And so theologians, people much smarter than me, say that what Paul is getting at here is a couple of things. One is that your attitude about giving, which in a few verses he'll say God loves a cheerful giver. That's that section. He says part of this is Paul talking about, hey, check your attitude. When the guy from out of town shows up and tells you about an opportunity to give, you should see it as an opportunity, not as a burden. This is a joyful opportunity to partner with the God of the universe to show the world just how good he is. And so it's partly about our attitude. But most theologians would say, well, it's mostly, though, about the amount. The amount that we give. How much do we get to give? Well, don't give so much that your own life and the lives of your own family are threatened. We get to give until giving another dollar more, another hour more in service if giving just a little bit more would threaten our very lives and the lives of those we love. So this morning, I know that many in this room, you are eager to remember the poor. But this morning, please do not drop the deed to your house and the offering plate. Because I don't want your children to be homeless so that someone else's can have shelter. Please, this morning, I know that you want nations to hear the gospel and to taste the goodness of God. But please don't put your life savings toward it because I don't want your children to starve. But we get to give until giving any more would be a threat to ourselves and our own children. And that means that we get to give a great deal. That's a reason for celebration. That God has given us so much manna that for most of us, 2% isn't really that much. 10% is not that much. 50% would, we could still survive. Our lives wouldn't be threatened. And that should give us joy that we get to give so much more than maybe we'd ever realized before. Verse 14, so it's not our desire that you'd be hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. And then he says, some of you have surplus. You have plenty. You have extra biscuits and chicken. And so it's out of that surplus, it's out of that extra that God has given to you that now you get to give to others. Don't you love that God is so good to us this morning that most of us have actually more than we need to just survive? Our God isn't a God who supplies just what you need to get by. But he's so good that he's given every one of us more than that. And so what do we give? We give from the excess gifts that God has blessed us with. It all belongs to God. 
a good practice that I have my kids um, do. They're 18, 16, 14, and 12. And, and look, my kids are dirty, rotten sinners just like yours. They need help, okay? They have my DNA coursing through their veins. Their flesh looks very much like mine. And so at an early age, I had my children every day before they go to bed to just tell us right before we say prayers before bed, what are three things that you're thankful for today? Just three things that completely changed your outlook. Maybe today you're coming here going, I don't, have an, I don't have anything to give. Oh, God has scattered so much manna in your life. Maybe what God's calling you to do is to just do this very childlike practice that I do with my kids. Just every day, write down three things. Three things you didn't need, God didn't have to give you, but three blessings that God has rained down from heaven for you. And in time, you'll begin to realize just how much you do have to give. Lastly, verse 15, verse 15, he says that when we give, what ends up happening is that everyone has enough. He says the goal is equality, which doesn't mean that you and I have the same amount in our bank account or the same square footage we live in or the same uh, number of clothes in our closet. It's not, it's not equality of quantity, but of quality, that every single one of us gets to live, <laughs> that we have what we need to thrive and to reach our full potential, that you and I have that same quality of life. And he says that when... When we go for this equality, it looks like Exodus 16. He quotes Exodus 16. Look, the quality, the equality that God is after is the kind of equality that God established thousands of years ago in the desert. Take only your daily bread, and when you do, you won't have too much and you won't have too little, but every one of us will have what we need, and every one of us will get to taste and see just how good and powerful and loving and compassionate and trustworthy God is. God's mission is to show that to the nations. God's command to all of us is to eagerly remember the poor. And God's method for doing that is you and me. Christians that he has blessed beyond what we need. So that we will give to those who don't yet have all they need. So that they will see that God can supply all they need. Now when we do this, incredible things happen. I want to close with a story of one man passing his extra biscuits and chicken to a young man in Kenya who didn't have enough. I was in Nairobi, Kenya in the Mathari slum, the second largest slum in all of Africa. You can picture it with me. One million people are crammed into three square miles of rusting corrugated metal. It was raining that day. My friend and I, we sloshed our way through the serpentine paths of that slum until we finally arrived at Elliot's house. Elliot, dapper Kenyan young man, 18 years old, so handsome. He knew I was coming, so he put on his very best to meet me. His school uniform, seafoam green tie, gray sweater, standing up so straight and proud and in front of a, a tiny little house, a house smaller than the average North American bathroom. It's just six by eight, 48 square feet. That's the whole house. Everything he owns in the world is in that little box. And his wide smile just didn't add up with that narrow home. And I must have looked confused because Elliot reached out his hand and put it on my shoulder and he explained. Yes, my house is very small, he said. But my God is very big. He brought me in out of the rain and he gave me a dry spot to sit on the edge of his bed and began to tell me his life story. 
about his very big, good, loving, compassionate, and powerful God. He said when he was five years old, his mother passed away, leaving his father to care for him all by himself. And his dad worked as hard as he could. He did the very best that he could. He works as a day laborer, which is the most common occupation on the planet. He goes out every day and he finds any work that he can. He's not choosy, but doing his very best, he couldn't earn just $2 a day. Now, that's not enough money to put food on the table. And so Elliot's dad did what any dad in this room would do. He starved himself. He skipped meal after meal, day after day, just so his boy could have something to eat. And it wasn't much. You know, a little rice, a few beans, maybe on a great day, a plantain or a potato. He said there was this one uh, special occasion. He can't remember now if it was Christmas or birthday. He was so small, it's hard to remember. But it was a special occasion when his dad surprised him with a gift he'd never seen before. He came in through the front door of that little home with this gift wrapped in white paper. And Elliot unwrapped it. And to his amazement there, he'd never seen it. Meat. They got a piece of meat to celebrate and to share together. You know, a little one who doesn't get proper nutrition, their immune system wears out, it wears thin. Elliot was always sick with something, and there was, there was no money to go see a doctor. And the government was so corrupt, there was no program to take care of him either. What could he do? Just hope and wait. Now, if you're born into what we call poverty in North America, and I know we have it, we at least have the hope of public school. I mean, I can't convince my kids back home in Nashville that school is a gift from God, but it really is. Now, I'm sure we've got some, some teachers, some principals, some administrators here, and I don't know what it's like in Canada, but I can tell you in my country, you're not paid what you're worth. And I don't think people understand what you're worth. You're on the front lines of the kingdom. You see, because here you can go to school for nothing, and these sweet teachers put up with us for how many years? And then finally, they give us this magical piece of paper called a diploma. It unlocks a world of options and possibilities. And, and where I come from, you can almost certainly, with that piece of paper, give your children a better life than the one that you were born into. But not in Kenya. Not in so much of the developing world where public school is not free. It has to be paid for like private school in the West. Somehow you've got to buy books and a backpack and a uniform and pay fees to those teachers. And then there's the meals and the shoes. And how can a father who can't even afford to put bread on a plate possibly afford books in a bag? It's an impossible situation. It was a hopeless situation. Until a knock came at the door. Elliot was seven years old, and that pastor that knocked on his door that day was so big and loud, and he made the craziest promises. Elliot wasn't sure he could really trust him. I mean, he said the strangest things. He said that Elliot would not go to bed hungry anymore, but every day he'd have something nutritious to eat. He told him if he got sick with a toothache, a stomachache, or something truly life-threatening, there would be doctors and dentists and nurses and counselors to put him back together again. He told him... That he could go to school and learn to read and write and add and subtract. And, and the books and the backpack and the uniform and the fees would all be taken care of. He said, not only will we send you to school, but, but you're going to learn a trade along the way. A skill. You're going to learn how to build things with your hands out of wood or steel or work on computers and maybe even fix those too. But we're going to find what you love and what you're good at. And we're going to train you in how to do that better. So when you graduate, you're going to graduate into a job. You're going to give your children a better life than the one you've had. Poverty will end with you, he promised. 
But as wild and hard to believe as those promises were, they were nothing compared to the last one. The pastor got down real low so he could look Elliot right in the eyes, and he promised, Son, God sees you. God loves you. God has such a plan for your life. And Elliot said that's the day that everything changed for him. That's the day that Elliot became one of Compassion International's children. Compassion International invented child sponsorship in 1952. They were the very first. And to this day, they're still the highest rated child sponsorship organization of their kind. Now, what do I mean their kind? A couple things I want to point out. I'm not an employee of Compassion International. I could speak anywhere this morning about anything that I want. I speak for Compassion for many reasons, but I want to show you just two that make Compassion unique and one of a kind. Compassion believes so wholeheartedly in the model we've just looked at in Scripture that the church is God's plan A for the poor and there is no plan B. That Compassion has turned down hundreds of millions of dollars from governments around the world who know they do great work and want to pour their funds into it. Compassion does not receive any government funding. Because of that, they're a lot smaller than a lot of organizations. But because of that, they're also a lot freer than other organizations to proclaim unequivocally, unashamedly, that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Compassion works exclusively through the local church, demonstrating the love of God in tangible ways and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ that you and I all believe. Because compassion works through the body of Christ, preaches the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ, on average, 500 children every single day come to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Compassion International. They don't just meet the physical needs, but the deepest needs that any of us can have. A deep, longing, desperate need for a relationship with the God of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ. Every child needs a sponsor. I asked Elliot his sponsor's name, and he said, my sponsor's name is Nick Erskine, Northern California. I did not have the heart to tell him Northern California is not part of the guy's name. He seems so proud, you know. So I played along. I said, well, hey, does Nick Erskine, Northern California ever write you letters? You know, the best sponsor shouldn't just give their money. They should give themselves. And he got so excited, and he pulled out this inch-thick stack of letters, letters from Nick Erskine, Northern California, that started arriving in his house when he was seven, and they were still showing up when he was 18. He said these letters are so important to him because of algebra. There's some days he's sitting in math class and he has no idea what the value of X is. Can I get a witness from anybody here this morning, right? Yeah. And he says on those days, poverty begins to speak to him. And it begins to just repeat in his mind over and over again. Some of us have voices like this in our heads too. You're stupid and you're nobody and you're nothing and you're worthless and nobody cares and you are never going to get out of here. And it just goes all day. Until the bell rings, and he hurries home, and he pulls out the letters from Nick Erskine in Northern California. I've seen them. A stack of them. We read them there together. Two grown men crying over a stack of letters written by another grown man. It was pathetic and beautiful. I love you so much, Nick wrote. I'm praying for you today and every day. I'm so proud of the man that you're becoming. Don't you quit. I know it's hard, but God has a big plan for your life. And he keeps going. I wanted so badly that day for Nick Erskine in Northern California to be with me in Elliot's house. I wanted him to see what I was seeing, that 
the $41 a month he gives to Compassion, it actually went to where they said it would go. It did everything they said it would do. It gave Elliot education and health care and proper nutrition and clean water to drink and a relationship with Jesus Christ. I wanted him to see this is real. But I couldn't afford the plane ticket, you know, to bring Nick all the way to Elliot. So I brought Elliot to Nick. Watch this. You may talk directly to him. No, I'm talking to you and Nick. You may, you may talk directly to Nick. Okay. Dear Nick, how are you? I hope you are fine. It's fine. It's a to have you. And I can imagine how good you are to me. I love you very much. And you are, you are you mean a home to me. You are like my dad. You are like my mom. Give me hope and strength to be well. Thank you for all the things you've been doing for me and for the ones you continue doing. I pray to God to bless you, to give you hope, to encourage you, to also support others who are in need. I want to leave you with a picture of Elliot today. That was nine years and many bad haircuts ago for me, but this last summer I got to go back to Kenya and reunite with Elliot. And I took this picture of him, and I took him and his son to a zoo. We spent the day together. Elliot is now 28 years old. He graduated from business school. He manages an international cafe in Nairobi because his English is so good. And he also speaks French and German. And he says, God is bringing the nations to me. He gets to share not only good food and coffee with folks every day, but the Jesus who changed his own life. On his shoulders is his little boy, Jaden, who is now four and a half years old. He's got some chubby cheeks, some pretty amazing dreads, some styling boots on. But the first thing that Elliot wanted to tell me about Jaden is this. Sean, I want you to know that Jaden doesn't need compassion's help. Poverty ended with me. This morning, I'm asking you to join the God of the universe in showing himself good and powerful and loving and compassionate to the nations. And that might not be by sponsoring a child with compassion. It's such an honor to be in a church that gets this, that is sending and equipping and encouraging and praying for missionaries all over the world. Maybe that's something you could be involved in right here at your own church. But if after you share your biscuits and chicken with your own missionaries, if you have more to give, then sponsor your child with compassion. I'm asking you too to heed the call. The command of God to remember the poor. How could you do that right here in your own community and around the world? And lastly, I'm asking you to be God's method for a hurting world that is suffering from spiritual and physical poverty. How could you give your time, your talent, your energies, and yes, your finances to spread the gospel and to meet the physical needs of your neighbors and people on the other side of the world? Perhaps that's by sponsoring a child with compassion. We have child sponsorship packets out in the lobby at various tables. Your pastor is going to come and tell you more about why he loves compassion and why he's chosen to, spot, to partner with compassion. But I'd love to meet you as well and answer any questions you may have. It's simple to become a sponsor this morning. Just simply grab one of these packets, 
They're not mass-produced. Everyone has the name and the face and the birthday and the story of a real child, and that's the only packet that exists for that child, so please don't leave with it. Please fill that out and turn it into us before you leave here today. I just want to say a quick prayer for you and for the amazing ministry of this church around the world. God, I thank you for pastor, for elders, for leaders who understand your mission, who heed your command, and who are busy being your method. I just pray, God, you continue to give them wisdom and discernment as they seek to invest the resources, time, and talent of this church wisely to spread the gospel in this community and to the ends of the earth. God, through this group of believers, would you please prove to the nations just how good and powerful and loving and compassionate and trustworthy you are. Thank you, God, for giving us more manna than we, could, than we need this morning. Now give us wisdom and discernment to know how to invest our extra in your ministry to the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.